Let me remind you of the evening study that will be happening tonight here at the church at 6.30 p.m. Uh, one of the things we, we, we want to do is to, uh, we want to minister the word in numerous uh, different avenues. Sometimes there's the large group settings, actually what RUF does, there, there is the large group setting, there's the, the small or smaller group setting, and there's the one-on-one setting. And so one of the things we want to do as a church is also have the times when we can open up the Word and discuss. And that's what this evening study is, uh, is going to be. So we're really excited about this. It's going to be a great study and I think a very encouraging one. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We are beginning a new sermon series on the book of 2 Corinthians. But yes, I did just tell you to open up 1 Corinthians. Uh, because here in 1 Corinthians, we're actually seeing Paul get to the heart of all of his ministry to the Corinthians. Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them survived. And it's really here in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where we see the core, the foundation, the heart of Paul's ministry. And I think this will actually help set the tone for what the entire letter of 2 Corinthians will talk about. For the context, let me actually start reading in chapter 1, verse 18, so we can get Paul's argument. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now here's our text. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of all wisdom and righteousness, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. No one was your counselor and no one was your advisor in the works of creation and redemption. Yet how backwards are our minds for thinking that our ways are greater than yours. It's in the moment of preaching where you renew our minds after the image of Christ. But that means that Christ must be proclaimed in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and divine power. All the power we would have to would just be making loud noises, but by a single word you can transform a sinful heart. So we ask that you would do so this morning. And we boldly ask this in the name of Jesus Christ who purchased our salvation. We ask in his name. Amen. How important is your diet? People have often asked me what the difference is going from playing uh, high school sports to college sports to professional sports. And actually, one of the elements that I often tend to neglect the most is actually the idea of dieting and nutrition. It was actually central to becoming a more serious and healthy athlete. Food is to the body as good gasoline and oil is to a sports car. But dieting isn't just important for sports, it's, it's important just for general living. Here's what one group lists of ten different reasons why it's good to have a healthy diet. Number one, good nutrition improves well-being. Number two, it's expensive to be unhealthy. Number three, it helps manage healthy weight. Number four, it maintains an immune system. It delays effects of aging. It gives you energy. It reduces risk of chronic disease. It positively affects your mood. It can increase focus. And lastly, it may even lengthen life. That sounds great, doesn't it? (laughs) But it's hard to implement. But one of the things we have to remember is that we're not merely made up of body physicality. We're also made up of soul. And as true and good as it is that the body needs a healthy diet, so the soul needs a healthy diet. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We can put it this way. To neglect a healthy spiritual diet, even though you have a healthy physical diet, will still lead to eternal death and destruction in body and soul. But to have a healthy spiritual diet leads to eternal life that you can even experience partly in this life. So really the question is this, why why would we not want a healthy diet? spiritual diet. 
If our heads are on straight at all, we would say yes and amen. We want that. Now, how do we implement that? Really, the question would be not just that we want a healthy spiritual diet, but it's this. What is a healthy spiritual diet? And how do we implement that in our church here in Stillwater? If we're actually going to answer this question, really we need to look at the Corinthian church to see what does spiritual malnourishment look like. If you want to see what a healthy diet is, you also need to see what an unhealthy diet is. Here's a little bit of context of the people in the church in Corinth. Paul is writing to Corinth, and several hundred years before these letters, uh, Corinth was a massively influential city. In the 6th to 4th century BC, it was, uh, it was so influential, it rivaled Athens to be one of the more influential cities in the Greek world. But then there came a time when Corinth started to fall apart. But then in 44 BC, somebody who no one knows by the name of Julius Caesar, he came along and he recognized that Corinth was actually in a very strategic location. So he actually decided to, to rebuild it. What was interesting is that through those efforts, Corinth then became Corinth 2.0 and became one of the centers of banking and finance in all the Roman world. In other words, Corinth was a very important city in the eyes of the world. But there's also a downside. In a massive city of about a million people, which is already big today, it would have been absolutely massive back then. There was also a lot of poverty. The poor were miserable. Here's what one historian says. While the women have Aphrodite, the guardian of the city, as their cult goddess, the men have famine. There was a great disparity between the rich and the poor, and there was widespread unethical behavior. There's a lot of social injustice, there was sexual immorality, there was greediness, drunkenness, and just a whole lot more. But the Corinthian church, they must be really good, shouldn't they? They had no problems, right? Let me just read you a list of what you would find in the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians about some of the problems in this church. You can't make this up. You see, they were acting just like the city. They were acting more like the surrounding world than the saved people of God. They were abusing spiritual gifts. They were using their Christian freedom for wild living. There was even in their church social injustice. There was even a situation of incest. They certainly had their own, as what we would call it, a hookup culture. There was lots of greediness and poverty with a lack of giving. There were church members who were suing each other. There was distraction from the gospel of grace to pursue worldly teachings and ideology. There was drunkenness. There was judgmentalism. There was homosexuality. There was a lack of biblical masculinity. There was poor leadership. There were people sleeping with prostitutes. There was the rejection of biblical roles in marriage. There were unbiblical divorce cases got to catch my breath because that's halfway through the list. There was a failure to care for the singles and also for the widows. 
There were people dressing in such a way that it was even immodest in the public's eye. There was drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. There was admitting people to the supper who should not have been admitted. There were people trying to speak in tongues that had no biblical truth attached to it. There was finger pointing, slander, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions and division, gossip, arrogance and disorder. It was so bad that Paul says it caused him much grief and pain. People were rejecting Paul and his teaching. They were welcoming in false teachers that were saying that Jesus wasn't enough. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, they were even starting to deny the resurrection of Christ. i got to take a drink of water. That does not sound like a job that someone would say, I want to go there. But if we're honest... Isn't this what many churches in America can look like today? Isn't this also what our own culture looks like today? And unfortunately, it's not only that Corinth was a malnourished child, but many of our own churches today look like malnourished children. And so here's the question, with just such chaos... Where do you even start? What's the plan? <laughs> I mean, how do you even begin to pick up the pieces here? What diet do you put these people on? Well, here's what they wanted. They wanted four qualities. Here's what's interesting. You'll see these themes through two, these two letters. They wanted four qualities. Knowledge, power, wisdom, and spirituality. Paul was... He was attacked for not sounding very knowledgeable. And basically, I'll read you a quote later of what Paul looked like physically. And Well, people thought he was ugly and dumb. So, doesn't sound very fun. They didn't, they didn't think he was up to speed on the trendy teachings of the day. Like them, we too can often demand to hear something trendy from the pulpit, thinking that that knowledge will do us better. The people in Corinth, they also wanted power. They wanted to look impressive in the eyes of the surrounding people. They thought that if the church was going to be respected by the world, they needed to look impressive in the world's eyes. Well, we also do this today. We can often say, give us something that will make us look, and here's the key word, relevant to the watching world. The people in Corinth, they didn't just want knowledge and power, they also wanted wisdom. In their culture, the, the celebrities of the age, they were orators, they were philosophers. And these public speakers, these orators, these philosophers, well, let's just say TED Talk is, is nothing new. <laughs> that was way back then. And it was all about getting these new ideas, this new wisdom, this new way of viewing life. And so they put all their emphasis on those things rather than the gospel. But fourthly, the Corinthian church also wanted spirituality. They wanted to look spiritual rather than be spiritual. They were much more obsessed with spiritual gifts than the spiritual giver. And we too can unfortunately often do this today. 
Churches in America can often seem to care far more about our own spiritual gifts or our personality test or our personal platforms than with the one who has made us that way. The problem is that while the world and the church might use the same words, we're not using the same dictionary. See, unfortunately, what the church in Corinth and what often churches are hearing today, and unfortunately, I just heard this the other day from someone, they're asking the wrong first question. The first question that they're asking is, how can we show the world that we're relevant today? That's not a wrong question, it's the wrong first question. See, the problem is that when you make that the first question, then you'll only seek after relevance by the world's terms rather than by God's terms. God's been around a long time, right? He also made the world. By that logic, you would say, if we really want to be relevant in today's world, then we would look to God's definition, God's dictionary, as it were. See, we need to ask the question yet again, what diet does the church in Corinth need? What diet do we need? What the church in Corinth needs and what churches in every age, regardless of geographic location or the makeup of the people, the diet that every church needs is true gospel ministry. Amen? Amen? There we go. I just want to make sure you're awake. True gospel ministry. That's the diet. That's what's needed. In every age, regardless of the geography, no matter what the problems are, God has said what you need most is true gospel ministry. The question is, what does that look like? Or, what does that taste like? Look at chapter 1, verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The first ingredient of true gospel ministry, of this diet, is this. You can't judge true gospel ministry by worldly standards. You can't judge true gospel ministry by worldly standards. This word, folly, uh, shows us why. The word means tasteless. It means, literally, it means stupid. It means lack of knowledge. It means silly, or it means someone is mentally dull. The Greek word for folly is where we actually get our English word for moron. The world looks at the gospel and says that is moronic. So if, if we judge our ministry by the world's standard, then we would not proclaim the gospel. I remember growing up in Montgomery, Alabama, and my family would often drive down to Orange Beach, and one of the sights you'll see down there is that there are beach houses where some are, uh, the first floor is literally on the ground, like a normal house you would see here. But then you'll see a lot of newer beach houses that are built on these 10 to 15 foot wooden beams. Now why is that? Well, 
Because now there is a new rule that whenever you build a beach house in order to prepare for possibly a hurricane and flooding, you need to build the first floor of the house up so that if it floods, the house is not destroyed. Well, think about this. Imagine if people in, in Kansas or Oklahoma where we, you know, we get tornadoes. Imagine just not knowing the context if we looked at those houses and we began to judge them and say, y'all are just not smart and ugly. Uh, uh, imagine the silliness of looking at that and saying, that would never work. We know that when a tornado comes, what do you do? You go to the bottom floor, the most central room of the house, right? Here's the thing, though. Those are two totally different contexts. If you judge one of them by the other standard, it will not make sense. We can't try to do ministry a worldly way and to get God's success. And when you do ministry in a godly way, it's not always going to look like worldly success. See, God knows what a healthy and successful church really is. He's been doing it a long time. And our hearts, ever since the fall came in, uh, or sin came into the world through the fall, our hearts are under a curse. Our hearts are now, they're warped, they're twisted, they're backwards. The things that feel good to us, or that look good to us, or that work well in our eyes, they aren't always the case in God's eyes. There's a man named George Stratton who did a very interesting experiment that I don't really want to think about too much because I feel like I would get vertigo, but here's what he did. He developed these things called inverted glasses. And when you put these glasses on, what was up was really down, and what was right was really left, which is funny because I just did my right and it looked like your left, so there you go. And so he, he had people put these glasses on and they would wear them, and obviously everything you know, it was crazy. When they would move their hand up, it would look like it was going down. I can't imagine how scary it would appear to be. Like when you tried to jump, it would be like you're plummeting through the floor. It took people eight days to get used to these glasses. And then what he would do is after those eight days, he would take the glasses off to see what would it look like to adjust back. Here is what sin has done to our minds. It has inverted everything. What we think is right is often wrong. What we think is wise, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is actually foolish. And what we think is foolish is actually wise in God's eyes. Sin has put inverted glasses on our eyes so we will never be able to see through the, through the eyes of the world, through the eyes of sin, we'll never be able to accurately judge what healthy ministry is. That's why we need the scriptures. And since this is true, since we can't judge or set the standard for ministry through worldly ways, that means we should not adopt worldly ways. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek 
wisdom. The world wants its own message delivered in its preferred manner. That's what was happening in, in Corinth. Instead of the message being Christ and him crucified, it became man and him improved. There were false teachers who had crept into the church who were saying, you know, Jesus is good, but he's not good enough. And that's the key word. One commentator says this, the wisdom of the Corinthians, the wisdom that they prized was bound up with displays of power and with clever, sophisticated rhetorical techniques. The Corinthians, Paul suggests, are allowing themselves to be captivated by worldly wisdom and worldly eloquence and therefore running the danger of cutting themselves off from the very means that God has chosen to save his people. You see, the message of the church is the meal for the church. The message from the pulpit is the meal for the people. Where the pulpit goes, the pew goes. So if you have a bad diet here, you'll have a bad diet there. You see, what, what was happening to the Corinthian people is that they were running away from Paul's teaching of the gospel of grace and they were being tempted to embrace other ways. In our confession of sin earlier, one of the things that I think is good for us to confess today is that we have traded the message of Christ and him crucified to now be humanity and our first call to self-love. Let me give you two examples of this in pop culture today. First is by, well, both of these are by two musical artists. This first one is by one person, and I'm not going to sing for you. You don't want that. It's one song where this artist says, I needed to lose you to find me. I needed to hate you to love me. So listen to her logic. She's saying, because my first need is to love myself above all else, here's what I'm going to do. If you don't affirm me the way that I am, I'm going to hate you and I'm going to lose you so that I can love me. I don't think that's going to form the best friendships. But then here's, here's a second example. One artist says in her song, you should know you're beautiful just the way you are. Grace is embarrassed of me right now. And you don't have to change a thing. The world can change its heart. Listen to that. You don't have to change a thing. The world can change its heart. Let me ask you a question. Let's say, let's say me and Grace adopted that philosophy for our marriage. And we both said, well, I don't need to change a thing. The world, everyone else, including Grace, the world needs to change their heart. How do you think that would go when we came to a disagreement? If we both adopted that philosophy of self-love above everything else. Is there any surprise why there is now more division as we have talked more about self-love today? It should not be surprising. Now, it doesn't mean you literally hate yourself because that's love and hate are two sides of the same coin. 
The problem is too much self. But when there is too much self, there is actually no real love. Because love is all about dying to myself to give myself to another person. You see, these, these messages, they don't do what they think they would do. This meal is clearly not working out, and it's left us severely malnourished. And unfortunately, I've heard it numerous times in what should be solid pulpits, where pastors will say something like this, Jesus came to make you into your best self. Now, let me, let me, give, a pref- let me give a little statement here. In one way, that's very true. Because only Jesus can restore you to true humanity in the way that you've meant, that the way you're to be made. But if you're not careful and you really embrace that statement, well, Christianity is all about Jesus coming to make me into my best self. All of a sudden, Jesus is a means, you are the end. Jesus is just a waiter, you're the chef. Jesus is a supporting actor. You're the main star. That's a sad story. Not only does the world want its message to be the meal, the world wants that meal to be delivered in its own way. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, He did not come proclaiming with lofty speech or wisdom. It's kind of the language there of a guru, language that was used intentionally by the public speakers of the day to sound very sophisticated and learned. It's not saying that Paul was opposed to logic. This is a very logical, reasonable letter. What it's saying is that Paul didn't put his hope and emphasis on those things. I think that's a good word for us today because when we're often choosing to sit under the preacher we want to sit under, we can't base our decision merely off of, is this person a good public speaker? Although that's important. Because, as Jonathan Edwards says, well, if you don't speak clearly, then it doesn't matter what you say, the people don't understand it. But just because someone is a very good public speaker does not mean they're delivering the full truth and nothing but the truth. Paul was downplaying strength and self-confidence. Here's what one person says. In that day and age, in that culture, critics complained about speaking skills, even if someone's arguments were strong, but their appearance or their delivery was bad. If their gestures or their voice tone, if it did not match what was considered to be good speaking, then they didn't really care about your own argument. Against some philosophers... These public speakers, they urged people to rouse the emotions. And audiences would often ridicule a speaker who trembled, which is what Paul is saying. He came trembling. I mentioned that I'd tell you this quote earlier. One very early testimony in the uh, early church is that Paul's physical appearance was like this. One person says, Paul was a small man in stature, bald-headed, crooked in legs, healthy, with eyebrows joining, and a nose that was rather long. It doesn't sound like the best eHarmony profile. 
So in other words, as we gather all this, once again, they're saying, yeah, Paul, you're stupid and you're ugly. That doesn't seem like it'd be a very good ministry. Paul was denying that he came in strength and self-confidence. He denied that he came in plausible words and wisdom of men. In other words, Paul probably was not as good of a public speaker as Tony Robbins or even the fictional character Tony Stark. He didn't sound as smart as Elon Musk and he didn't bring new ideas like Jeff Bezos does. A lot of that's negative, isn't it? But what about the positive? That's a lot of what true gospel ministry is not. That's the unhealthy diet. What's the healthy diet? Look again at verse 1. Paul does say that he came proclaiming the testimony of God. It actually could be translated, maybe you have a Bible that says he came proclaiming the mystery of God. That, it's probably a little bit more accurate of a translation. What does that word mystery mean? It, it's not the idea that we can often see today like uh, Sherlock Holmes where a detective comes to a case and the truth is not revealed. It's a mystery, so you have to solve it. But rather, when the Bible uses the word mystery, what it means is that in the Old Testament, there were prophecies that were given. People said that God would send a Messiah who would do X, Y, and Z. Now, how exactly it would, in detailed manner, you know, happen, we'll have to wait and see. But when Jesus fulfilled those prophecies in a surprising way, people called that the mystery. Does that make sense? What's a mystery? Paul's saying this. My ministry, when I came to you, was all about showing you this, how all the scripture points to Jesus and how he has fulfilled it all in kind of some amazing ways. To give me a little bit of example, Knox gets sometimes these uh, little dinosaur eggs that when you put them in water, it, it, the uh, outside plastic kind of dissolves and a foam dinosaur appears. It's, the, the mystery is not the fact that like a dinosaur will appear because the, the box says it. Uh, it would be one thing if it was like a live tree will form. Then you'd be like, it's a foam dinosaur. Um, you know it's going to be a dinosaur, but you don't necessarily know which dinosaur it's going to be. That's kind of the part of the mystery. The mystery of Jesus is that in the Old Testament, you see something that is kind of like in a room that's dimly lit. And then when Jesus comes on, bam, lights come on. And you see it. And you say, yes. That is him. Paul is saying, the main meal that I fed you with is this Jesus Christ. Amen? That's an amazing message. You would think that maybe an amazing message needs an amazing way to proclaim that. But let me put it to you this way. Do you know what one of the best compliments you can give me? If, if I smoked you a brisket, you know what one of the best compliments you can give me is? It'd be this. I don't need any barbecue sauce for this. Amen? Right? Now that is a compliment right there. 
because it speaks for itself. You don't need anything else to dress it up. That's it. Anything else would just get in the way. That's a compliment. You see, the message of Jesus Christ does not need anything. It doesn't need anything to, be, to dress it up. It doesn't need any help. It is like a lion. You just need to let that lion roar. Amen? That's what Paul's saying. And that message, particularly about, about Jesus, in verse 2, you see this. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When Paul says to know, he means this word that it doesn't mean merely to know about, but to know something intimately. I'll give you this example. That was unfortunately very true this week when me and Josh Hawkins played in this golf tournament. Um, it was very sanctifying for me. Just ask Josh. Um, it's one thing for me to say that I know how to play golf. It's a whole other thing for Zade Winslow to say he knows how to play golf. It's a whole other thing for Eddie or Jonathan or Chris or whoever, the people who really play golf. It's, it's a whole other thing. Why? Because you're intimately familiar with it. I know how to play, <laughs> but you ain't going to take my advice. When Paul says that he came to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he's not talking about a Wikipedia Christianity where you can just know a couple facts. He's talking about intimately familiar with. A deep knowledge of Jesus Christ that changes the way that you live. Amen? He is talking about experiential knowledge. He's not opposing theology in real life. He marries them together and he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Because you can't have one without the other. And when he says to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's as if he's saying this. In order for you to know this, nothing else is going to get the time, the effort, or the emphasis in my ministry than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen? Nothing else rivals that. If you want to have a right understanding of God, of humanity, of salvation, of history, of philosophy, or science, or marriage, or sexuality, or sports, or law, or medicine, or parenting, or ethics, or culture, or art, whatever it might be, all of it is through the lens of Christ and him crucified. Amen? When Paul says Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's kind of the classic saying of his person and his work. He wants you not to know about Jesus Christ. He wants you to know him. To know him for eternal life. To know intimately that he is God and man. To know that he is your prophet, priest, and king. To know that he was miraculously born of a virgin. That he lived a perfect and sinless life. That he was not only a teacher, but he was also a miracle worker. That he was compassionate, gentle, welcoming, but also truth-telling, courageous, and prayerful. That there was no one like Jesus Christ. Amen? There's no one like him, so why would anyone else be the star of the show but Jesus 
Christ, but also him crucified. This word, when it says, and him crucified, it doesn't always show itself to us in the English translation, but it means this. It means a past event that really happened in history, 2,000 years ago, matter of fact. That he was crucified, and that on the cross, as he was there, God poured out his wrath upon his son because of the sin of us. And in order to save us, Jesus stepped in our place and he took our hell so that he could give us his heaven. That's what happened on this earth 2,000 years ago. But this Greek word doesn't merely mean that it happened. It also means this, that where we are today, what happened back then is the most relevant thing today. The effects of that event affect us today. Amen? You know what Paul's saying very clearly? The philosophers and the orators of the day, they thought that they had a trendy or relevant ministry. There is nothing more relevant than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the most relevant thing today. So don't get distracted. Don't run off on these other tangents and hobby horses. But anything you address in life, address it through the lens of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the diet that Paul gave the Corinthian church. Amidst all that, that was the diet. Paul says, I don't just want to give you this message. I don't want to just give you this meal, but I want to give it to you the way God gives it to you. Paul says he came proclaiming. This word for proclaim is the picture of a messenger who's been given information by an authoritative sender. So in other words, it'd be like this. If Jason gave me information to go deliver to Zaid. I'm picking on you this morning. Jason gave me information to give to Zaid. I don't give Zaid the Wilson message. I'm merely the messenger. It's not my message. It's Jason's message to give to Zaid. It's a channel. That's what preaching is. Preaching is not the preacher's message. The preacher is a waiter in a restaurant that might come to you saying, you want to know about this brisket? You want to know about, you want to know about this guy? Let me tell you what he did for about 14 hours overnight. But it ain't the waiter's brisket. He's delivering it to you. Amen? And when it's according to God's word, you take it that way. And it is God speaking to you saying, this is what's true for you. Now that's a refreshing message for sinners who will come in here every single Sunday. That Jesus Christ is just as relevant for you right now in your worst moment than ever before. So what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of God's word. It's not the only thing that happens in the church, but it is the central thing. You see, that's why when the preaching of the word is preached in God's way, that then it overflows into the life of the church like a giant river will have then its different channels flowing from it. But Paul says that the way he preached 
was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Yeah, Paul was logical, he was reasonable, but his true power was not an earthly power. It was a heavenly one. In the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, it was the Spirit who empowered him to preach the Word. And as he preached the Word, the Spirit empowered him. They go together. Paul preached with an all-consuming reality that heaven and hell were true. He preached to sinful people who were in desperate need of a gracious Savior. He was a herald of Jesus Christ, not proclaiming his own message, but he was preaching on behalf of the one who was always speaking. And it was that ministry that Paul had, that's what nursed that church to help. My friends, when we adopt this diet, that is when we will see God glorified and man saved. Amen? That's the diet. God will be glorified because all of life is all about him. And the church that he has purchased, it's his church, not ours. We are all, whether you are full-time on staff or you're visiting, we're all servants of him. It's his church. We proclaim his message in his way to his people. And when we do that, people will be saved. Amen? People will be saved in L.A. and they'll be saved in Stillwater. People will be saved in Ukraine and they'll be saved in Colombia. When we take God's message and deliver it in God's way, then people across different languages, ethnicities, geographic locations, they will be saved. Amen? Because we're proclaiming Christ. Him who is God's grace. Let me leave you with this. On Martin Lloyd-Jones' tombstone, it reads, actually reads verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's on his tombstone. You can go Google it online. I wonder if at the last day when Christ comes back, will that be, as it were, the tombstone of this church? That we decided to know nothing amongst us except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And let me tell you this. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully preached, God's kingdom will never back down. Amen? Our confidence is not us, it's in Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are asking that in your mercy you would save us, that you would sanctify us, and that you help us center our individual lives and our corporate life on this message. Lord, we are thankful for this church. Thank you for the Dorst family who were sent here by you to give us this church, to give us this body. Help us to further that mission by preaching your message. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.